Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast, as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner, Brett Boone, as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Brought to you by DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett sits down with Super Bowl champion, Joe Theismann. All right, let's do this! And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone, and today on the program, I sit down with a two-time Pro Bowler, an MVP, and a Super Bowl champion. Off the field, he's gone on to be very successful in the booth as a commentator in the NFL. Ladies and gentlemen, Joe Theismann. Joe, thanks for coming on the program. Hey, listen, Brett, it's great to catch up with you, man. I, I used to, When I was a little kid, I watched you play, and I, I think it was just so great. So great to talk to one of your heroes. <laughs> I, i'm breaking my own rules you know it's it, in the last two months in the last two months i've had two irish quarterbacks on i had rick meyer on now you as a trojan although you know I, i'm kind of a fake i went to usc i'm kind of that fake trojan though i'm, I'm a homer when they when they're winning i'm i'm rah rah shish goomba when they're losing i'm not i don't really care my brother how how, how upset do you get like when I really, I really, I really, I pretend. All right, I've got a brother that went there. He still to this day, and he embarrasses me. I mean, he'll he'll go, he'll come down the road, uh, fight song blasting. <laughs> you know, and I said, Aaron, you cannot be the manager of the New York Yankees and act like a child with your jersey on Saturday. That's what he does. Now I've got a daughter that graduated from SC a few years ago. She's equally. I mean, she every week. You're gonna watch the game, Dad. You're gonna watch the game. I, I am so fair weathered. Like, of course, I pull for them. But if they lose, I, I just don't get that upset. <laughs> you know, it's, you know, what's funny is it's interesting when when somebody I'm rooting for loses, I don't get involved emotionally in the win or the loss. I sit there and I analyze why. I, it's just I think it's the quarterback in me. It's the broadcaster in me. And I sit and I analyze and, you know, I yell at quarterbacks, get rid of the ball. Why did you do that? Understand down in distance, know where you are. Where's the wind coming? I, mean, I just, I, I, I'm in my own little broadcasting world uh, still to this day, but you know, I, I get to, I'm the same way with the Irish. I mean, it's, it's crushing. Um, you know, the game against Oklahoma state in the bowl game was just, we go out 28, seven. And all of a sudden we wind up losing that ball game in the end. Uh, it was just, you know, it was a ebb and flow type of a football game where your emotions go up and down and all over the place. And now you've beat us. I think this is the fourth year in a row. When I was at SC, I don't think we lost to to Notre Dame. And I was there. When I was I there, was there yeah. 88, 88, 89, and 90. I was the Rodney Pete Marinovich era. I had two ties. I, I you know, like I was, my record was like, I think 20 and three and two or something like I tied USC twice. We tied them. Uh, we, we tied them seventeen seventeen at our place on a bogus call by an official. He called a clip, and the guy never clipped him. Took away a field goal that we had, and then I believe we tied them twenty one twenty one. Matter of fact, my sophomore year, when we played them out there on the coast, it was my sophomore year it was twenty one twenty one when OJ was there. Um, the first pass I threw in that game. Now, now. Terry Hanratty, who was a Heisman Trophy candidate, was the quarterback. He got hurt in week seven or eight. Uh, all of a sudden, uh, 
Era's got two other seniors on the roster, Bob Belden and Cole O'Brien. And I'm a sophomore, and he, I'm, he makes me the starter. So I think we play Georgia Tech and Pittsburgh, or vice versa. And then we go to play USC on the coast. And the first pass I throw is picked off and run back for a touchdown by Sandy Durko. And um, I'll never forget it. I walked by Era, and I said, don't worry about it. I'll get it back. And he told me many years later at his 90th birthday, I asked him, why did you, why me? Why, you had Coley. Coley had quarterback Notre Dame to a national championship in 66. I said, why me? And, and, and this was 68. And you had Bob, a senior. He said, I just felt like you were ready. And, and I, I appreciated that more than you can imagine. But so many years went by and I wondered why. You know, you, you get that for us in athletics. It's always like, why has the opportunity presented itself? Now it's up to us to capitalize on it. And for me, it was like, you know, here I am, my first pass. I walk by, I said, don't worry about it. I'll, I'll get it back. And uh, we wound up with the 21-21 tie. It was the lowest rushing total I think O.J. had in his entire career. But it was a um, – those to me were barometers where I measured whether I belonged because so many players from USC went on to professional football. When I was in high school, it was New Brunswick, New Jersey. We used to play them on – uh, Thanksgiving Day at Rutgers Stadium. I grew up about 20 minutes from there, and we were they were arch rivals. And if I could play well against them, I felt like I belonged. Then when I got into college, USC became that barometer by which I measured myself. If, if I could play well against them with all the guys going into pro ball, you know, then, then maybe I belong in college football. And then when I got to the pros, it was the Dallas Cowboys. Because they, they were the, it was an unbelievable rivalry, just like USC was for us. And then all of a sudden, you know, that if you could play well against them or you could beat them, there was this validation, I guess you could say. It was, you know, I was one of those guys who just sought validation um, in the athletic endeavors that I took on. No, I see what you're saying, though. There's the, the Goliaths, and, and that to you was the Goliath, the USC. Uh, by the way, why, how were we playing the ties? We didn't have overtime then? No, it didn't have overtime. Uh-uh. <laughs> they no. said 17-17 tie. Good game, guys. Go ahead, go ahead home. Yeah, that's about it. And, and, you know, I mean, well, heck, we have ties in professional football, for crying out loud. I mean, you know, I mean, the, the Steelers, uh, they're seven, they're eight, seven, and one. I mean, you know, that to me, I, I just, I'm not, a, I'm not a big fan of adopting the college rule where everybody starts at the 25-yard line. Um you know, maybe maybe there's some type of modification where you can eliminate the tie. You, they reduce the, the quarter in overtime to 10 minutes. So you only have 10 minutes now. I say you go back and you let each team run a two-minute drill. Or, I mean, you know, maybe most first downs. I don't know, but I'm not a big fan of ties. What really upset me was in the All-Star game when they had to tie in the All-Star game because I'm a huge baseball fan. Like I said, I was just, I was just busting on you, but I really – I love the way you played ball. Um, and because uh, I got I got drafted by the Twins out of college to play. And it was like baseball's always been my first love. And so for me, when I saw that All-Star game end in the tie, I said, you've got to be kidding me. No, <laughs> there's no ties. They just ran, they ran out of players. There's no there's there's no crying in baseball to quote. No, Tom Hanks. there's, there's no ties in baseball. I wouldn't think. Yeah. You grew up South River, uh, South River, New Jersey. Um, I want to hear about Joe Theismann as a kid. Tell me about your parents. Well, my mom, uh, I grew up in a little town, South River, about one square mile big. 
there were all kinds of little towns in that area. And it, um, yeah, I played pop Warner football. My mom wouldn't let me play pop Warner football. My, my mom worked at boy Scouts of America for almost 20 years and at squibs um, pharmaceutical for a number of years. My dad um, worked in, uh, at a gas station in which he, he partnered with his brother, John. Uh, it was an, at that time, it was a uh, Esso station, not an Exo, Exxon station. And then he went to work for uh, my Uncle John at, at a liquor store. My dad spent 25 years in the gas station and 25 years in the liquor store. And fortunately, I, they retired and you know, he retired at like 65. And I was fortunate enough to be in professional football. And so I retired my mom and dad to Florida. And I promised them anywhere they wanted to go in the world once a year, they could just let me know and We'll make it happen. And so it was sort of my way to say thank you to mom and dad for all the sacrifices they made. I mean, my dad worked 13 hours a day, six days a week, Brett. And, and, you know, people say, who's your hero? My dad was my hero because, you know, we'd come home from church and dad would plop down in his chair and he'd be asleep in a heartbeat. And here would come little Joey after we cleaned the dishes for, for Sunday meals. And we, you know, we had one sort of big meal. Everything else was leftovers. I mean, my mother and father's combined income was $12,000 a year. So, you know, we, we managed, but, you know, we had everything that everybody else had. It's just that it wasn't the glitz and glamour and some of the other stuff that we see today. But my dad used to pop down in that chair and I'd shake his arm and say, come on, dad, let's go outside and throw the ball around. And about five minutes later, I lived two blocks from my high school. My buddy would come by on his bike. He said, hey, Joe, we're going to play ball. Come on. I dropped my bag. Hey, catch you later, Pop. You know, and never once, Brett, did my father, when I tried to wake him out of a sleep, say to me, son, I know you're going to be gone in 10 minutes. Just let me lay here. He never he always got out of that chair. He was always there. And while dad was working, mom was my she was my pitcher. She was my catcher. She was my wide receiver. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I was very blessed uh, to have my mom and dad with me for a lot of years. Mom passed at 92. Dad passed at 90. And dad and I, my, you know, at 90, my dad and I still play golf together. And what scares me right now, I look at my golf swing and start to look like my dad's a little bit. I'm going, oh, my <laughs> gosh, what, what's going to happen to me going forward? But I, I was very lucky. We lived with my grandmother. Uh, and uh, like I said, I grew up two blocks from my high school, man. My mother wanted to find me. You walk out the front door, you make a right-hand turn. Two blocks later, you're on a, you're on a, either uh, I'm playing stickball against the school. I'm playing tennis. I'm playing basketball. I'm playing football. I'm playing baseball. I was, that was my life as a kid. That's how it was. I, I love yeah. I love those times, though. I am in this. This is well, you could probably appreciate this. My dad comes back from Hawaii. I think he was on one of those trips. You know, what do they used to have the the uh, on the wide world of sports where they'd have all yeah, the different. Yeah, yeah. he come I, back. from. I competed in him. Yeah. Yeah. I think dad came back from one of those one year and he had a conch shell. So I grew up, you know, in around town, exactly what you're saying. We're out playing stickball. We're playing hockey. You know, we're playing street hockey. Move the move the nets when the cars have to go by. Uh, Two hand touch in the street, wiffle ball, whatever we can go. And at the end of the night, when it was time for me to come home, dad would blow this conch shell. And my buddies, my buddies would look at me and start laughing. Goes, oh, Brett must have to go home now. <laughs> but you're right. Life was simpler. You know, it was like that means get your ass home. <laughs> it really was. You know, one of my favorite, one of the favorite games we played when we were kids was we would take that, that, that pink ball and you would throw it against a curb. And if you caught it right, if it if it went on the if it went you know on the other side of the street 
And over the curb on the other side of the street, it was a home run. And so, I mean, we found all kinds of ways to, to do stuff. I mean, I used to, I used to make these stick when it rained like heck outside, I'd put my boots on, throw a coat, raincoat on, put a rain hat on and sit and let my little ship float down the gutter. Uh, and do all, you know, it, it was, uh, they were, let's put it this way, but they were simpler times. Um, and I, I wish that some of the young people today could experience simpler times instead of having to deal with so many pressures that young people have to go through today. While I got a quick second, want to give a shout out to DraftKings. We've partnered with DraftKings now, and they are the official sponsor of the Boone Podcast. Dan? Hey, thanks, Boone. Football fans, who's ready to score some free bets? Now you can when you bet on any NFL game this week with DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. New customers who bet just $1 on either team to score can win $100 in free bets. When a team scores, you score. Hey, if Sportsbook isn't available in your state yet, no worries. DraftKings won't leave you empty-handed. Everyone can play for huge cash prizes all season long with DraftKings Daily Fantasy Sports Contests. DraftKings is giving all new customers a free shot at millions of dollars in total prizes with their first deposit. So why wait? Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code BOONE, B-O-O-N-E, bet $1 on either team to score, and win $100 in free bets. If they score, you score. With promo code BOONE this week at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL. Must be 21 or older, New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only. New customers only. Minimum $5 deposit and $1 wager required. One per customer. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com slash sportsbook for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. And now back to my interview with Joe Theismann, South River High School. Speaking of Cowboys, you, you opened up talking about the Cowboys a little bit. Drew Pearson's a high school teammate, but you're a baseball player, basketball, and a football player. And it, it sounds to me like baseball is kind of your first love. Uh, yep. Take me through that high school, and uh, eventually you go on to Notre Dame. Yeah, it was it was great. Um, my cousin Billy w- was our neighbor, and he was the second baseman. He was also the other guard on the basketball team. Uh, Drew was my wide receiver in high school. As a matter of fact, first pass, first pass Drew caught was a was a touchdown pass. They played it at his Hall of Fame induction this year. It was so great to see him go into the hall. Um, he was such an incredible Dallas Cowboy receiver, and it was really funny watching film of him as a Dallas Cowboy was the same way he ran and the same things he did when I played with him in high school. But we were, you know, we were undefeated my, uh, my senior year in high school. And I'm still close to a lot of my buddies from there. I don't know how you are, but it seems like my high school buddies are the ones that I've always remained the closest to over time. And it's really funny. I went to a 50 year reunion, um, not, not too long ago. And we were walking around and I'm, I'm looking at some of the guys I'm going, wow, man, it, I can't believe they, the guys looked alike, Brett, but the girls necessarily didn't, which I was a little bit surprised about. They, they just they looked not not size wise, right? But facially, they just they just looked a little different. But yeah, I love I loved baseball, uh, played in the triple ABA, went up to Johnstown, Pennsylvania, played up there. I used to play in the summer. I drove a uh, my summer job was a uh, I was a beer truck driver for a guy by the name of Pete Lasardi. It was Schaefer Breweries out of Somerville. And I'd really keep my baseball uniform in the truck and they would send us out on different runs. And I learned about loads. And 
So I was, you know, I, I became a union guy uh, as a driver. And, um, and then basketball was, we had these funky stripe. We looked like the Globetrotters before the Globetrotters with these funky pants. And they were like right up to your crotch kind of shorts. And, uh, but uh, I'll never forget, we had a kid because I live in the South. And everybody's very polite down there. And the kids come up and instead of trying to pronounce your last name, they come up and say, hey, Mr. Joe, or to my wife, hey, Miss Robin. And I always laugh because our center on our basketball team was a guy by the name of Ziggy Dugalazemski. And I could just picture somebody trying to come up and say, hi, Mr. Dugalazemski, how are you? And I would I just chuckle to myself at times, again, going back at the way we grew up. But life was all sports when I was a kid growing up. I mean, I was a I was an OK student. I did enough to be able to play ball and do the things I wanted. But it really wasn't until I got to Notre Dame when I really understood and tried to apply myself academically to stay eligible. How'd you get to Notre Dame? How'd you make that choice? Uh, interesting. I um, I was recruited by a number of schools coming out of high school. I was a high school All-American, I think. And and I, I chose five schools, Penn State, University of North Carolina, Wake Forest, North Carolina State, and Notre Dame. Those were the ones I were go- was going to visit. Just so happened my head coach in high school, a guy by the name of Ron Wojcicki, backed up Roman Gabriel at North Carolina State University. And I thought, you know what? That's a good reason to go to college there. So I chose North Carolina State. Uh, Earl Edwards was the coach at that time. And uh, I visited Wake. I visited UNC. And and then uh, I'd made up my mind to go to, to state. And then Notre Dame called and said, we'd like you to make a trip out. And I said, well, I've already decided I want to go to North Carolina State. And he said, we know that. But because we're an independent, if you choose to come here, you wouldn't lose a year of eligibility. At that time, it wasn't like it is today with the portal. I mean, you just guys, it's a free for all out there in college football now uh, or college athletics, I guess you could say. And so um, I made the trip out to Notre Dame and Rocky Blyer and Dan Harshman were my chaperones, two running backs. Of course, Rocky, the you know Vietnam vet and, you know, fantastic Pittsburgh Steeler. And so we fly back. I fly back. Dad picks me up in Newark, New Jersey. And he says, what do you think? I said, I have to go to Notre Dame. And he says, why? I said, Dad, it just feels right. And, and, and Brett, I contend this, that. Sometimes we allow ourselves to talk ourselves out of what our gut believes. And if we would stay with our gut decisions more often, I think the percentages of things turning out better would probably be higher. And so I trusted my gut and I wound up at the University of Notre Dame. And uh, like I, you know, I would say I, I, I punted. We, we played one game against Pittsburgh my freshman year because freshmen weren't eligible. So we had one, we had a freshman team and the varsity just beat the crap out of us. That's all it was. We were just there to be beat up. And then my sophomore year, I started the first seven games as a punt returner. I went from punt returner to starting quarterback in the span of an hour <laughs> at the wow. University of Notre Dame. And then uh, you know, I guess you could say the rest is history after that. It was a, but you know, it was really funny. Because, you know, that was where Roger Valdeseri, who was our public relations director, my senior year, changed the pronunciation of my last name from Thiesman to Thiesman. Um, I'd had a really good junior year and Roger calls me in the office. He says, how do you pronounce your last name? I said, it's Thiesman. He said, no, Joe, it's actually pronounced Thiesman. I said, no, Rog, my last name is pronounced Thiesman. He said, no, it's pronounced Thiesman. I said, give me the phone. So I picked up the phone. I called my dad back home in Jersey. 
I said, Dad, I got a question for you. My father would always say when I had a question, fire away, son. So I get my dad on the phone. I said, Pop, got this question for you. He says, fire away, Joe. I said, Dad, how do you pronounce our last name? And like there's dead silence on the phone for about a minute. And my father comes on. He says, son, are you all right? He said, you're a senior at college. You don't know who you are. What the heck's going on? I said, I'll explain later. I'll just, this is, you know, just tell me, how do you pronounce our last name? He said it was Thiesman. Turned to Roger and I said, Roger, my last name's Thiesman. I know I just got the phone my dad. He said, Joe, I want to tell you something. There's a trophy out there called the Heisman Trophy. He goes the best college football player in the country. We think you have a chance to win that trophy, but we're not just going to count on the reputation of Notre Dame, nor your athletic ability. We think by simply changing the pronunciation of your last name from Thiesman to Thiesman to rhyme with Heisman, we can get you that trophy. That's how I became Joe Thiesman. And uh, it was the first time that any university had ever really put any type of a campaign together to try and get somebody the Heisman Trophy. What did your family say? Did they care? I, I don't think they'd care. I, 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 I'm thinking about it right now. If it's me, I, I think it's kind of a cool thing. Well, you know, I mean, again, we're, now it is. But think back 50 years ago. I mean, you, I mean, you really go back more than that. Right. Five years. ago. But it was really funny. I called my grandmother. So she was the matriarch of our family and we're German. Thiesman is German. So I called my grandmother and I oh, called you got to get the OK from her. I called Granny. I said, Granny, look, they want to change the pronunciation of our last name. She says, well, I tell you this. She says the correct pronunciation is Tysman. And actually what they want to do is closer to it than what we have now. So she was fine with it. So that's uh, that's what happened. That's we I wound up becoming Joe, becoming Joe Thiesman. But when I get back to Jersey, like when we used to play the Giants and all that stuff, everybody would give me all kinds of crap. Hey, Thiesman, uh, you've changed your name. You're not proud of your heritage. All that baloney, you know, it, it's funny. But uh, the kids are Thiesmans and my buddies are still, I'm Joey Thiesman. You know, it's funny too, growing up in Jersey, Brett, we all have Y's at the end of our name. There's Bobby, Joey, Tommy, Jimmy, everybody's, everybody's got a last name that ends in, or first name that ends in Y. But the most important thing is Graham. She okayed it. Yeah, Graham okayed you know, it. You bring up a great point and uh, about about your gut reaction, your gut feeling when you went to Notre Dame. Now, obviously, I was never a football player, but I got to go to Notre Dame one time, and uh, it was the SC Notre Dame game, and they had, you know, they wanted to get a little something going on with the baseball yep. uh, teams, so they they offered us, hey, we'll 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 take you to Notre Dame for the SC Notre Dame football game. You'll play a little practice game. You, you know, we'll get a little publicity about it. All the baseball players. Great. You know, we get to go back to Notre Dame and SC. We kind of take it for granted. You know, we go to the Coliseum. Most of the guys are headed to fraternity row by halftime. It's just a different, it's a different place. And when I went to that, you know, when I walked into that stadium and you're sitting on those bench seats you're yep. just you're packed in wall to wall, you know, you're elbow to elbow with people. It was it was the coolest football game I ever went to. It's a great and it, it, it's it's just different. And and to this day, I explain it. I've been you know, I've been to a lot of sporting events. And, and you know, when people ask me, what's one of your favorite? I said, Notre Dame. I went to Notre Dame SC at Notre Dame. It was the coolest Maybe coolest sporting event I've ever been to. There's just something special about it, especially on the football side about uh, about that Notre Dame. It really is. And you know what, Brett, the new stadium that obviously they built a sort of a superstructure around the original. They kept the original stadium, the 55,000 seats. They're they're trying to get rid of some of the splintered ones now. 
Um, and, and they built this. They added 30,000 around it. We have a big jumbotron now. And it's uh, a lot of classrooms are in the facility. A lot of there's training for training um, for students there. And, you know, we're, people ask me where I went to school. And I said, I went to a small school in the Midwest called the University of Notre Dame. Everybody laughs. But I was there. There was there were seventy two hundred guys. It was all male. Uh, uh, women came in in 1972, the year I graduated, the year after I graduated, women uh, were into the University of Notre Dame. And our women's sports have been spectacular. I mean, whether it's soccer, field hockey, basketball, you know, they're just winning national championships. Our baseball team went to the finals last year. I mean, it, the program is is really more than just football at the University of Notre Dame. But um, I'll never forget. I'll never forget before they built the superstructure. And you were there, I think, before that happened. If you stood at the five yard line sort of facing campus right above the score, right above the stadium, you could see the upper part of the library, which is Christ on the cross. And that's where the term touchdown Jesus came in. And I could imagine if you were an opposing quarterback and you're backed up on the five yard line and you're looking out at the Notre Dame defense and you happen to look up, you got to be thinking, are you kidding me? I mean, th there is such a thing as divine intervention. I believe that. Yeah. And so, you know, I just I just got the biggest kick at it. I'm thinking, man, if you were an opposing quarterback and you saw that, you got to be thinking, what in heaven's name are we up against? That's cool, though. That's a cathedral. Tell yes. me about Zom, tell me about Zom Hall. Is it Zom? No, actually, I was in Walsh. Uh, oh, you were in Walsh. Hey, Soren, yeah, Zom, Soren. Um, Soren was where the captain, one Soren where the captain of the football team was. But there, we had two different quadrangles. There was the north and the, and the south. And I lived on the, I lived on the, the, uh, the, actually it was north. It was right next to the bookstore. And, you know, we had some great, we had Bengal bouts. We had great boxing there. We had uh, the bookstore tournaments for basketball for the different halls. But I mean, it was just, you know, I spent most of my life uh, on campus shooting pool at a place called the huddle. Um, I had all my classes set up to finish at one o'clock, uh, whether it was in season or out of season, because I had to have it during season to go to practice. So all my classes, we're early in the morning until one o'clock. And then uh, and then I just after that, when football was over, I just went over to the huddle and started shooting pool. And I, I became, I think, third best on campus at one time. And uh, I just really used to love to go in there and, you know, play a little nine ball and have some fun and, and enjoy. Enjoy the college experience. I mean, I heck, I went out literally and I'm not kidding. Years in college. Um I wasn't that the goodest student, so I had to study. Same girl, her name was Margie Broderick. Um, went out with her my my freshman year. Went out with her my sophomore year, and uh, and then I, you know, uh, of course St. Mary's was across the street, so uh, I made up for my latter two years in college. But my first two, I really focused on athletics, football, and if I wasn't overshooting pool, I was down in the um, the. Rockney, uh, Rock, New Rockney, Paul, uh, playing. So for me, it was you know it was all about sports. It was all about the academics to really be able to stay eligible to play football because that was my goal. Is I, you know, I got there and I wanted to play. I did something, Brett. That's interesting though, and 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 I I, I call this having the opportunity to create a competitive edge. 
When I signed at the University of Notre Dame, I was one of 13 quarterbacks, I found out. And I, I'm five feet 10 and 160 pounds. So I'm just, a, I'm a, you know, I'm a, I'm a drop of water. There's other guys, 6'2", 6'3", 215, throw the ball through a brick wall. I went to the university a week early. And I spent time with Tom Pagna, our coach, our quarterback coach and coordinator. And, and I learned where to stand in the huddle. And I learned the plays. And I learned some of the things that I needed to from a football perspective. And when everybody else came in, because I had somewhat of a degree of knowledge of what was going on, I was the first guy in the huddle. Now, was I good enough to be able to keep the job? That was going to be remain to be seen. But I had that opportunity. And really, you create that opportunity. I created the opportunity for myself to, to have a chance to be the starter. And I, I think that that's one of the things that you know sort of carried me through my life is how do you gain a competitive edge? I was a skinny little kid. Matter of fact, when I walked off the plane, a guy by the name of Joe Yanto, our defensive line coach, recruited me. He recruited New Jersey. The linebacker coach, Johnny Ray, was uh, a tough, gruff guy. And so Johnny and Wally or, or jo Johnny and, uh, and uh, Coach Yanto are standing at the airport waiting for me. I come walking off the plane. And Co Coach Ray turns to Coach Yanto. He says, where's this hotshot quarterback? And he points at me. And he says, are you kidding me? He says, I don't think that kid's strong enough to carry a bucket, more or less throw a football. So that was my, my first re impression on somebody at the University of Notre Dame. But I absolutely love the university, love everything about it. And I played seven games. Uh, I played third base for seven games on the baseball team, of which you cannot find one photograph of. Not one photograph. I've had people check the archives there. I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm in the lineup card. The, my stats are there. What year was it? It was 1970. Okay, so it was right before it was the end. You were a junior or senior? I was a senior before okay. we went to spring practice. Okay. Well, hence that you get drafted that year. I got drafted by, the, drafted by the Twins. I got drafted by the Twins. I believe I was drafted 77th because I tell Piazza all the time he was drafted 99th, which means I was drafted 20 places ahead of him in the draft. <laughs> which was in the Hall of Fame, but what the heck? Um no, but I, like I said, man, I loved it. I, I played third base because it was really funny. See, back then, there was only one baseball scholarship. And the shortstop was on a half scholarship. The catcher was on a half scholarship. So as it turns out, you know, I, I was on a football scholarship, so I couldn't play shortstop because the, the kid was on a, you know, on a Phil, Phil Krill was his name. Jeez, how did I remember that? Um, so anyway, Phil, um, Phil's there, and then I played third base, and, I think I hit 370-something, and you know, I, had a, I had a good series. We played a round robin down in Miami. And Michigan State, I think Michigan State, Colgate, Miami, and Notre Dame played one of those round robins, and it was, it was great. You know, and, and the, you know, the one I, – I have very few regrets in my life. Uh, I'm a, I'm, I call myself a windshield guy, not a rearview mirror guy. But I really would have loved to have gone to a spring training camp and just seen – if I could, could hit or if I could field. And again, you know, validation to me was, was really what I was looking for. We had, a, I played uh, my freshman year, Rodney Pete was the, was the quarterback at SC and he was the all American and, you know, he's going to be a decent draft pick in the NFL. 
and the baseball, he was a good baseball player. I mean, he'd finish, you know, he, he, it's like he'd come right to our first game, wouldn't practice, wouldn't do anything. And this guy could play. Yeah. And he, I think he got drafted three or four times and he never signed. I said, Rodney, he, I said, what is it? He goes, Brett, I love baseball. He said, but football is my passion. And he never, he never, uh, pursued it on any time. And I, and I had him on recently and he said, yeah, that's the one thing he wished he would have done was, was give it a, give it, give it a try to see what it would have been like for him on the baseball yeah. side, the, I mean, side you know, of the ledger. And you look at, you look at a lot of guys that play the quarterback position, you know, they're all, they're all drafted, you know, Elway, Marino, you know, you know, I got drafted, Rodney got drafted, uh, Kyler Murray. And, you know, it's really funny. I, I made the statement about Kyler. I, I just felt, I still think he's, He's challenged height-wise in this game, but he has proven to be incredibly residual, incredibly dynamic when it comes to uh, playing football. And, you know, I thought, you know, baseball would have been the way he would have gone, but, you know, the kid's fun to watch. Uh, I just hope he can last in this game. And it's, you know, if you're a runaround quarterback in this game, you give these defensive coaches enough time to study you, they're going to figure out a way to abuse you and figure out how to corral you. And we're starting to see that a little bit with Lamar Jackson. You know, they're not letting him run around as much and, and do the running things that he did before. And they're making him throw the football. And that, that to me is, if you have the ability to throw the football from a pocket, you can play professional football for at least 10, 12 years. I mean, you look, look around the league. There's 32 teams that means roughly you, you need roughly 90 quarterbacks on rosters, 90 to be able to fill them out. Forget about play, but how many of them can really play? I mean, we're seeing it this year, probably more than ever with COVID and injuries and everything else that, you know, the, the quarterback pool in the national football league is not very deep. Sophomore year, uh, you get a shot. Terry Hanratty, you're replacing. Right. 1970, you win the Cotton Bowl. Uh, Take me through those years once you took over the helmet at Notre Dame. How is that? How does that change you? All of a sudden, you're you're Joe Thiesman, and now you're Joe Thiesman, and you're the quarterback of the Irish. I was Joe Thiesman up until my senior year. So the end of my sophomore year, all my junior year, I was Joey Thiesman. Uh, And then my senior year, I became Joe Thiesman. Um, it, it was, you know, I've said this before, um, and I've asked other people this. I asked Tom Brady once what made him great. He said, the right time, the right place, the right people. I asked Troy Aikman what made him great. He said, the people around me. And, and my answer would be the same. I, I think uh, I was part of a, a football team that in 68, 66 won a national championship. Now, here I am, the quarterback, uh, a year a year after in, in 68 uh, and the nucleus was incredible of the athletes we had. Do you know that our 1970 university of Notre Dame football team, I believe still holds the record for the most plays run per game in an entire season at 93. And we huddled, we huddled. Wow. I'm, no hurry up offense. Uh, we 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 just huddled. We, we ran. I mean, it was play go, play go. I mean, part of the problem was is you know, I mean, I think our senior year we shut four people out. We gave up seven points to four other teams, um, 
and then a few others, you know, USC scored 38 points against us my senior year in the Coliseum, which was, I think, three times more than anybody had scored against us. We only gave up 119 points uh, my senior year there. And that was just like, and it was in a torrential rain. As a matter of fact, um, Jack Cohen, the young kid from the University of Notre Dame who quarterbacked him this year against Oklahoma State, at halftime he had 342 yards. And I'm thinking, my record at five, I think 21 26 somewhere around I said it's you know it's going to be broken and oddly enough he wound up we wound up with 509 points because a buddy of mine sent me a a text that said your record is still intact Uh, (laughs) but uh, and it was in a torrential downpour at the Coliseum Coliseum was my favorite place to play Brett Uh, all the RFK was where we played our home games absolutely but when it came to going someplace else to play put me in the Coliseum I love the way the seats sort of fanned away from the field. You were removed a little bit from the field. Everybody wasn't on top of you. I love the, the, the time of day we played, that late afternoon, that little misty air, uh, the sun setting. It was, it was fun. It really was. Your senior year, you're an All-American, and you're getting ready for the NFL draft. Give me a little lead up to that little snapshot of of how you got ready for that draft and what your agent telling you what are you thinking because it ends up it it ends up being a pretty unique situation you get drafted by the dolphins you get drafted by the twins and you sign with the argonauts right i got drafted by all three of them um baseball was you know they offered me a contract i still have my contract it was five hundred dollars i still have it um you know i just sort of kept it for archival purposes but i but um I really didn't have an agent at that time. It, it was so different. I, there were there were no combines. I sat in Roger Valdeseri's office, our PR director's office, and the draft went on. And different teams would contact you. The Eagles contacted me. The Giants, the you know um, San Francisco, the the Cowboys, all these different teams. And somebody told me he said, whatever team contacts you is not the one that's going to draft you. It's going to be somebody from somewhere else. So the first round went by, and I. You know, because people had said, hey, look, you know, if you're around in the first round, I, mean, I was runner up to the Heisman Trophy. And so then the second round went by and I'm thinking, finally, the third round goes by. I told Roger, I said, I'm not sitting around here and listen, you know, waiting on this stuff. I'm going to play basketball. Come and get me if I get drafted. So I went and I, I played basketball. Roger came in. He said, you've been drafted by the Miami Dolphins. Well, I'd been drafted by the Toronto Argonauts also of the Canadian Football League. So I fly down to Miami and Joe Thomas, who's their general manager, is having heart surgery. So I negotiate my contract with uh, Joe Robbie, who was the owner of the team. I walk into his office. I introduce myself. He introduces himself. He says, what do you want? Now, you're going to love these numbers. I said, I want $35,000, and $55,000, a three-year contract. And I want a $35,000 bonus. I didn't have an agent. I'm smart enough. I'm a Notre Dame guy. I can do this, I thought. He says, you got it. And I'm thinking, no, man, that ain't the way negotiations work. We got to go back and forth a little bit. I read the books on this stuff. And so I fly back to Washington and I go on Miami TV and I go, come hell or high water, I'll be a Miami Dolphin. I fly back and Arapar Sigian is my advisor, whom I never got advice from. Uh, But then they they put a clause in there when it came to the bonus. I broke it down over three years that if I didn't show up for one particular 
particular year, I'd have to pay it back. And we haggled over it. You got to remember, 1971 was the end of the Vietnam War. So I didn't know it was going to go on. And so for me, um, I, I got sort of upset, I guess you could say, a little bit. And I wound up, uh, I said, look, this is wrong. So I called the Argonauts and I said, they offered me 50, 50, 50, 50, four-year deal, $200,000 U.S. So I flew to Canada. And at this time, I'm calling Leo Cahill, who's the coach of the Argonauts. So you're still interested. And, you know, Don Shula thinks, he thinks I'm a Miami Dolphin. Done, deal. I wind up uh, going to Toronto. They say, you leave the country, the deal's off the table. I sign the deal, I leave, I get back to South Bend. Eric calls me at six o'clock in the morning. He said, what in heaven's name have you done? I signed with the Argonauts. He said, I know. Shula's on a plane right now up here to talk to you. And boy, Don read me the riot act. Holy mackerel. He was so pissed. You had a, you have a moral obligation to be a Miami Dolphin. I said, well, you had a moral obligation not to screw around my contract. I didn't understand the negotiations. Uh, you know, I was, I was naive and foolish. I don't regret what I did. I felt bad that, you know, uh, it turned out the way it did. And Shula hated me after that. And, it, and the irony of it, it's really unbelievable, the irony of it. Um, so I don't sign with the Miami Dolphins. And they go to three Super Bowls. It's the undefeated season. Actually, Earl Morrow, after I didn't sign, Don went and got Earl Morrow from the Baltimore Colts to be the quarterback. And do you know that the undefeated season – in 1972 of the Miami Dolphins, Earl Morrill quarterback, I believe, nine of those games. Not Bob Greasy. Bob, Bob did the Super Bowl. But that was that, you know, the uh, Gary Upremian play in the Super Bowl where I think they right. beat Washington 13-7 or 14-7. Um, so I wind, up, I wind up being a, you know, Toronto Argonaut for three years. Loved my time up in Canada. We went to the Grey Cup, which was the equivalent of the Super Bowl was an unbelievable football team with a great bunch of athletes. So I come back to the NFL, and in 1982, who do we wind up playing in a Super Bowl? Don Shula and the Miami Dolphins. And I beat him. So now I know he's still pissed at me. So in so, uh, 84, we go back and play the Raiders. 85, Rune Arlich comes to me and he said, I want you to be a part of the Super Bowl telecast. ABC had the telecast. And I said, that's exciting, man, because I'm now towards the end of, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, 10, 11, 12 years into the game. And I'm thinking sort of about the future. And and he says, um, uh, I said, I'm, I, am I going to do sideline stuff? He says, no, you're replacing O.J. Simpson in the booth. And so I actually broadcast the San Francisco 49er Miami Dolphins Super Bowl, Super Bowl 19 in Palo Alto, California. Guess who the coach of the Miami Dolphins is? Don Shula. Don so, Shula. Now, so now this, this story of me and Don goes on. And then finally, many years later, it was like, not let bygones be bygones. And he sort of forgave me for not going there. But he, I mean, that man held a grudge for a long, long time. Uh, how was that? How was that? That's interesting to me because you're in the booth as a current player. I, I went in the booth in 03. They got me to do it for Fox. They were trying out the the third man in the booth, and that's when they first brought a player in. So I go into the booth with McCarver and Buck. I didn't like it because I was I, I felt real con- self conscious. Like I can't be critical. You know, I'm I'm still prob- in my mind at the time. I'm thinking I got five years left in the game. Uh, I got to face these guys in spring training three months from now. How was that for you going straight from the field 
as an active player. You're calling the calling the Super Bowl. I think you called it with Gifford and Meredith. I did, and they were great. I mean, it was really. I was, I had really no idea. I mean, I talked about plays. I didn't talk about players. I talked about plays. I talked about concepts. Um, right. You know, it was, I mean, that was San Francisco and Miami. I mean, it was, it was an unbelievable football game. And so I really, you know, we, and we would play the 49ers. As a matter of fact, Jack Kemp and I are the only two players that have, that have actually broadcast while we were playing a championship game. I think he did an AFC championship game when, or the, Back, you know, when he was with the Bills, Jack was the other one that did it. But he and I are the only two. Um, it, it wasn't awkward at all. It was an unbelievable experience. And it sort of set me on the path of where I was going to go after that, after uh, after football. And um, I loved it. So you spent time in Toronto, 71 to 73. A lot of success there. You're an all-star in 71, all-star in 73. Then the Dolphins, uh make a trade with with the Washington Redskins. They trade for number one pick, and they get Joe Theismann. You're headed to the NFL, back to the States. First of all, how was your time in Toronto? What were the challenges? It, it seems to be Canadian football. The, the, the rules are a little different. The field's bigger. Tell me yeah. about that, and then moving on to the Redskins. Uh, you know, it was it – was, um it was it was an eye opening experience for me going to Toronto because the ball was a little bit bigger. It it, it was a, it seemed a little longer, a little bigger. You had to get used to throwing the ball. The field's wider. The end zones are twenty five yards deep. You only have three downs. Um, and uh, as a matter of fact, they have a single up there. If you miss a if you punt the ball in the end zone and it's it's not run out, it's a, it's one point for the team that punted it in. If you miss a field goal attempt, it's the same thing. It's one point. Um, and, and so for me, I'll never forget my first snap up there. They have unlimited motion. Everybody can be moving. All the backs can be moving. The receivers can all be moving towards the line of scrimmage. So I get up under the center and everybody's moving around and I back away from the center and the ref throws a flag. And he said, yeah, I said, yeah, you know, the guys are moving. He said, Joe, they're allowed to move. You're not. So I wound up with a five-yard penalty, my first play in the Canadian Football League. But uh, John Bassett Sr., who owned our team at that time, was uh, he went on an economic um, freeze, I guess you could say. They weren't going to pay a lot of money. I mean, I was making $50,000 a year back in 1974, which was 73, which was a, a fair amount of money uh, by comparison to, to professional sports. But he wasn't going to go any higher. He wasn't going to move it up. And we had a gentleman by the name of John Barrow, who was a great defensive tackle at Hamilton, the Hamilton Tiger Cats. And Hamilton, Toronto are separated by about, you know, 60, 50, 60 miles. And so it'd be like having Bob Lilly be the general manager of the Washington Redskins, a great defensive tackle, the Cowboys. So I sit down with John one day and we're negotiating. And, you know, I'd had to, I'd come off of a Western swing where I had, you know, some really good games. And he said, you think you're pretty good, don't you? I said, yeah, I, you know, I threw three touchdown passes last week. He said, let me talk to you about that. He said one of those touchdown passes was a five-yard hitch to Eric Flea Allen. He ran for a touchdown, 70 yards. You think that's important? And, and then he says to me, he said, you know something, Joe? You're just not as good as you think you are. And I said, John, you never were as good as you thought you were. And I knew right then and there that my career as a Toronto Argonaut was probably over. Um, and I'd never, ever come back at anybody and said anything, but it was just he just pushed the wrong button. And so I wound up coming back to the United States. George Allen traded the number one pick to Miami for me. 
And then oddly enough, 70, you know, the years I was in Canada, 71, 72, and 73, the Dolphins won Super Bowls. They were undefeated in 1972. As a matter of fact, in 1971, when I did not go to the Miami Dolphins, Coach Shula went and got Earl Morrow. And what a lot of people don't realize is Earl Morrow quarterbacked nine of the games in the undefeated season for the Miami Dolphins. He started was the starting quarterback for nine of those games. Bob Greasy had uh, had hurt himself. And so I come back and I joined the, the Washington Redskins. And George Allen makes the deal for me and he calls me in his office and he sits down and, he, and George was left-handed and he would always lick his thumb. He'd lick his right thumb and he'd write with his left hand. And so he's got this blank envelope in front of me. And he said, you know, I could have had this guy. I could have had this guy, but I wanted you. I wanted you. And he said, I got somebody on the phone I want you to talk to. And it was Mr. Cook who was living in Las Vegas at the time, but he wanted to welcome me to the football team. Never been around a more intimidating individual in my life. Jack would intimidate the living daylights out of everybody. Um, I'll never forget Coach Gibbs when Mr. Cook used to come to practice. There were three cheers set, chairs set up. Uh, John Cook Jr., Mr. Cook, and Joe would all sit in that chair, or Bobby Beathard, our GM, would be one of them. And uh, we knew it was, it was a Wednesday afternoon, and when those chairs were out, Joe was a different coach. He, he wanted to make sure we put on a good show and everything was crisp and, you know, things were jacked up just a little bit more. But then, um, you know, when I came back to the, to the Redskins, um, I started my career as a punt returner. Um, I wanted to play. I loved to play. I'd, I'd return punts in college for the first seven games of my sophomore year. I used to catch punts and kick them out of the end zone in the Canadian League to save the one point. So I, I just caught punts for like six, seven weeks. And then all of a sudden the opportunity presented itself. And I had a chance to, to get on the field against the New York giants. Um, actually snuck on the field against the giants. Um, our, we had a guy by the name of Herb Mulkey who George Allen had found in one of his tryout camps, one of the 600 player tryout camps. He got hurt. Kenny Houston, uh, the hall of fame defensive back was also a kick returner. He gets hurt. So I sneak up behind George and I say, hey, George, I said, I said, coach, Kenny's hurt. You want me to go in? So he says, yeah. So I go running by him and, and he turns to Paul Lanham, our special teams coach. He says, what's he doing in there? He said, uh, you sent him in to return punts. He says, heck, I did get him off the field. Well, you know, once you cross the white line, you're in. And so I caught the ball and I could prove to George I could do the job. And so I spent 74 and 75 returning punts and absolutely loved every minute of it. Matter of fact, if the good Lord had blessed me enough to be healthy, to be able to go, go do something in football right now, I would prefer to return a punt. And so it was a lot of fun. And, uh, and then I had a chance to start to play, and I returned punts in 74 and 75, 76, 77. I uh, you know, learned and sat behind Billy, and Sonny had retired in 75. And, and then in 78, George Allen was fired. Jack Pardee took over, and I became the, became the starting quarterback. The the punt return story is tremendous. Uh, let's see. Aaron Rodgers backing up Brett Favre. Would he have ever returned a punt? No. I, you know, <laughs> you know, I, I Different time. Or Different Paul time. Patrick, Patrick Mahomes backing up Alex Smith was another yeah. one. You know what was funny, though? Doug Flutie, Doug and I are really good friends. Doug Flutie actually was did return or tried to return a punt. In it, when he was in New England, uh, I think he fielded one punt, and that was the end of it. 
Then he realized how crazy that was. So I was I was one of those few guys that had a chance to be able to start his career that way. I, I was a holder. I was a punt returner. I, I was a punter. I played quarterback. I played running back um, in 1974 against the St. Louis Cardinals. It was a run-pass option. I think the only person that didn't know it was a run-pass option was a little old lady in Topeka, Kansas, who <laughs> might have been watching the game. <laughs> so I wound up getting the crap kicked out of me. But, I, you know, I had a chance to do it all in, in the game, and I, I loved every minute of it. Took over for Billy Kilmer in, in 1978, and uh, this is kind of what you've been waiting for your whole life. You, you had a prestigious career at, at the University of Notre Dame. You went over and had a lot of success in in Canada. Now you're at the helm. Now you're the man uh, starting quarterback for the Washington Redskins. Take me through. Give me a little snapshot of 78 to 81. 2,500 yards you throw for your first year. 2,700. Follow that up with 2,900. And in 1981, you throw for 3,500. And that's when Joe Gibbs took over was 1981. So so give me a snapshot of that and and speak a little bit to John Riggins and uh, Joe Gibbs. Uh, Well, 78 to, to, you know, 78, 79 and 80. Um, 78, you know, I'm, I'm the toast of the town. First eight games, we're six and two. I'm on the cover of Sporting Magazine and all these different things. And um, and then we go two and six and, you, you know, you get humbled in a hurry. We finish the season eight and eight. Uh, 79, we have a chance to go to the playoffs and we wind up losing the last game of the season to the Cowboys. It was, I believe, Roger Staubach's last game. Roger hits uh, Tony Hill with a touchdown and winds up winning the football game. And then in at 80, John Riggins retires. You know, John had an unbelievable game in 79 against the Cowboys, and then he was done. And so uh, in 1980, he retires. We go 6-10, and 10, and pa- George, Jack Pardee gets fired. Joe Gibbs comes in in 1981 and takes over, and we're 0-5, and, and uh, he's going to bench me. I don't know this, but after the San Francisco loss, our fifth game, I go to his house, and we sit down and, you know, I, I, I said to him, Coach, I just don't feel like we're on the same page. And he said, Joe, look, I, I need a quarterback who is committed to football. He said, you have radio shows, restaurants, TV shows, all kinds of stuff. He said, I want a guy that's just totally committed to football. I said, I'll do it. I'll get rid of everything. But give me a chance before I have to do that. And then from that time forward, we, you know, we went 8-3, and 12-1, and 16-3, and 11-5 I believe five or 4. And, and then I got hurt at, at 85. But um, – you know, what, what really became the foundation of our football team when Coach Gibbs took over and, and we made the adjustment after the fifth game was our offensive line, the Hogs, and John Riggins' ability to be able to run the, run the football. I remember John ran with such power. Down around the goal line, when Joe Bugle, our, our offensive line coach, put in that particular aspect of our, of our goal line package, he basically said, we're going to block 10 guys. John, you're responsible for running over one of them. And that's what he did. I'll never forget, we're playing the Detroit Lions in Detroit. And they've got a defensive back by the name of Luther Bradley. I believe Luther was a Notre Dame guy. And we're down around the goal line. I hand the ball off to John, and there's this pile, and there's this collision. And I see this helmet pop up in the air above the pile. And it's Luther's helmet. John had hit Luther so hard, 
He was the running back. He hit him so hard, his helmet flew off. And, and, and I'm sitting there, I'm going, my God, he's killed him. He knocked the guy's head off. I couldn't believe it. And then we're playing the Rams in 83 out in the coast. They have a defensive back by the name of Jimmy Johnson. Now, Jimmy comes up to hit John and try and tackle him. And I remember him just getting like, bam, knocked out. So we're at the sort of getting to the end of the half. Now, this is midway through the first quarter. And so I run out of bounds over by the Ram bench. And I see Jim Johnson sitting on the bench just staring out into space. He knocked him basically out. <laughs> I mean, but John was phenomenal. I mean, he 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 partied hard. He played hard. Um, man, he was he was just something else. Uh, you know, he'd go out and have a great time, and the next day he'd be out running gassers, which is the fifty-three yards, the width of the field, back and forth. Um, six foot, six foot two, two hundred and thirty pounds was a. I think he was a uh, hurdles champ in Kansas. He and his brother were unbelievable out there uh, at, uh, in, in Centralia. And um, he brought that power to Washington. And that, that he became really the, the piston of our offense. My job was to move the chains and pick up first downs and get the opportunity when we could to put points on the board. But, you know, it all went through John. What we were, what we were able to do all went through John. As we mentioned earlier in, in the show, we talked about simpler times, and that was one of the things. You know, I, I always bring it back to baseball, but I remember my childhood and, and watching those Pittsburgh Pirate teams, the We Are Family teams, and the Big Red Machine, and uh, the teams, the Phillies that my dad played on. It's like all those guys came up through the minor leagues and played their whole career together. Yeah. And they lived in the off season. They lived, you know, a half hour from the ballpark and no one had a house over here and over here. I mean, obviously, the 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 uh, the finances have changed. Well, quite a bit. You couldn't afford a house. You couldn't afford right. a house over here, over there. You know, you were lucky to have one home. But it was it, I thought it was just a, a cool time. And, and obviously it was my childhood. So, you know, those are some of my most memorable times. And and uh, I, I love those days. Uh, you mentioned. Another point that I thought was really interesting in, the, in that conversation with Joe Gibbs that turned around your relationship, uh, I had a similar one. I had Lou Pinella when I was a kid. And, uh, you know, I was this hot shot prospect coming up. Lou Pinella's coming over from the world champion Reds, take over the Mariners. And he kind of had that look in his eye to me, like, who do you think you are, you little hot shot? Well, you're going to prove it to me. And I'll tell you what, I'm going to make it really hard on you in the meantime and I would fight and claw and I'd keep my mouth shut but I guess it was the way I walked the way I talked uh there was something about me that that rubbed Lou wrong and he we would have these drag out fights and I'd go into his office you son of a bitch and he'd be screaming I mean we'd almost be going to blows Anyway, we finally had a, a one day where we just let it all out. And I said, what do you want from me? And it was similar to what you were talking about. I said, what do you yeah. want from me, Lou? And he said, I want you to do this, this, and this. I said, fair. I said, you just leave me the hell alone. I'm going to play my ass off for the, I, I forget it was 1993, the second half of this season. And he said, fair enough. And he goes, if I don't like it, he goes, I'm going to get ready. <laughs> and if I, uh, if I like what you do, you're going to be my second baseman for the next 15 years. I said, wow. fair enough. 
And I went out and I had a really good second half. Next thing I know, he's calling me into his office uh, on the weekends and he's betting football games with me. Hey, Booty, let's go. Me and you. So now he's my best friend, right? We finished the season in 93. I'm on my honeymoon and I get a phone call and it's the... uh, it's the Seattle Mariners. They said, Brett, you've been traded to the Cincinnati Reds. <laughs> so all the all the press thinks, oh, it's because Lou and Brett really are at odds and they hate each other. It was quite the contrary. I mean, right. and I didn't look. I knew that we were we were cool. I knew that all that stuff was was water under the bridge. And we moved on and we ended up reconnecting, you know, in the early 2000s. I went back and played for Lou and we sure. had some really good years in Seattle. And he's my favorite to this day. And he was a big reason that I went back there. Um, but but it's it's cool that you, that one conversation and it kind of changes history. Maybe not history for everybody, but obviously the Washington the Washington well, Redskins changes, of that time and, and Joe you know, Theismann. It changes our personal history. I mean, yeah. who knows? I mean, who knows if I would have been traded? I mean, I spent. I was one. I'm one of the rare guys. Uh, when you look around the league, how many guys get to spend their entire career in one franchise? I mean, you know, you, you look at Green Bay. Well, you don't know what Brett, uh, you don't know what uh, Aaron's going to do. But, you know, basically, you know, Green Bay, Brett, Brett came from Atlanta to go to Green Bay. Uh, Danny Marino kept his down there. John Elway in Denver. There aren't a lot of guys that that had that were fortunate enough to be able to play through some difficult times. I, I think it was a it was a different time in sports then, too, Brett, because, you know, you if you struggled they didn't automatically want to get rid of you. I mean, they made changes, but not wholesale changes like we see today. Um, if, if you struggle today, you have you're on a very short lease. I mean, the and the economics almost make teams keep guys. You're making so much money, nobody can afford you, um, and so you wind up buying yourself two, maybe three years, and then if you can't play, then you're out the door. Now I always think of, I always think of Jim Plunkett. You know, uh, Jim Jim won the Heisman Trophy the same year I came out of college. He also, you know, beat me in a Super Bowl eighteen when he was an Oakland Raider. But he started in New England. Then I played against him when he was in San Francisco, and he found a home in Oakland. Uh, and so it, it's just interesting how when you look at different individuals in sport the road that they've traveled, and I think both of us will agree that the road that we traveled, I think made us better people, made us better competitors, uh, and gave us a real perspective of the games that we love. Without a doubt. Um, that 82 season, you're a pro bowler. You end up being a Super Bowl champion that year. And, you know, we mentioned earlier, it was those Dolphins. You beat those Dolphins. How ironic. It, years yeah. later, it comes back. And, and that had to be pretty sweet. And and I talk on this program quite a bit, not just about Super Bowls, but but World Series, uh, maybe a little bit too much. But it's it's important to me to to just make note how special those times are, how special winning a Super Bowl is, how special winning a World Series is, because how hard it is. You know, a lot of people, uh, those Yankees of the late 90s, you know, they get four. Some of the guys on the team have five rings. Right. And, and I try to tell the average fan that asked me a question about the World Series and, and my, you know, my participation in them. I said that that is not normal. That's that's fantasy land where you have five rings. You know, Tom Brady yeah. having seven rings. That's fantasy land. I played with so many great players and and with so many 
guys that didn't even get a chance to go to a World Series, let alone win one. I've been with some guys that went and, and didn't win. And you, every year now, I watch those Super Bowls and I watch those those World Series, maybe occasionally the NBA championship. And when yeah. I see those guys at the end hold, holding that trophy up, I think that's awesome. Really, really cherish that because they don't come along too often. They're special, special times. As you know, you know as well as anybody, it, you've got to be a great team without a doubt, but you've got to get breaks and be playing j- particularly well at the right time. I've seen, I watched the Dodgers this year. The Dodgers are the class of baseball without a doubt on paper, top to bottom. Nobody should beat them. They got outs in the second. You never know. You never know. And uh, just talk about that 82 season, your Pro Bowl season, and especially that Super Bowl. Well, you know, it's interesting, Brett. Uh, You know, the points you make are so good. That moment when you're crowned, when you're part of a world champion, and in, in, in football, the quarterback position is the single most dependent position on the field. I mean, John Riggins was the MVP uh, of that Super Bowl, and rightfully so. Um, our defense, I believe, held David Woodley, who has passed since about the last about seven, eight years ago. He was 0 for 17. The Dolphins were 0 for 17 the second half of Super Bowl 17. They didn't complete a pass in the second half. Um but that, that year was – it was a strike season. Uh, we started with, I think, two games, and then we went on strike for like six or seven. And I managed to organize workouts. We had a really good attendance for five weeks. We just – I took the same game plan we had from the last game, and we'd go through – we'd go through practice. We'd spend an hour and a half out there together, working together, staying together, playing together, practicing together, go grab a beer after it was over together, go over to different guys' houses. Um, And we really stayed together as a football team. And then when we came back, um, you know, we had the opportunity to be able to almost carry those off-field workouts back onto the practice field and continue that run that we were on. So, I mean, you know, in 74, I went through a strike with Washington. In 82, we went through a strike. And I think in 87, uh, there was a strike. So each year there's been a strike. Washington's had some pretty good success winning championships. I'm waiting for the next one. Of course, you know, baseball's in the middle of one now, so who knows what's going to happen there. But um, that 82 season was just – it was magical for us. I mean, Mark Mosley was the MVP. Our kicker was the MVP of the National Football League. It seemed like we were always in this fight. And I'll never forget what Joe Gibbs said when he took over our ball club in 1981. I, it's, it's either the first or one of the first meetings we had. And Coach Gibbs basically said, we're going to be a 60-minute football team. We want to be in position at the end of a game to be able to win it with a field goal or a touchdown or stop the team from scoring. But we're going to play 60 minutes of football. And that's really what we were. Sure, we had games where we you know, blew guys out and stuff. But we were a 60-minute football team. And, and I think you look around the league now, you look at what, you look at what Tom's doing in Tampa. I mean, the, the, the comeback against the Jets. I mean, that's, what, that's 59 minutes and 45 seconds. Uh, right down to the wire. So uh, it was it was a special, magical year. And then in 83, we're a better, even a better football team. We built the foundation in 82, and in 83, we were just better. 
we we understood the system. The coaches knew who we were. And uh, we wound up losing two games that year. I think we lose 34-33 to the Dallas Cowboys, somewhere around there. And, and then we lose to the Green Bay Packers 48-47 before we wind up uh, losing to the Raiders in the Super Bowl. We were two points away from having an undefeated season. We averaged 30, almost 35 points a game. And like I said, it wasn't one of those – what is it? One of those mad those situations where you think, are you going to win? The question was, how many were we going to score? I mean, that's how that's how much confidence we had in our football team. But that uh, that Super Bowl was. I remember spending oh, going back to '82. I remember spending an hour and a half on the phone with my buddy Burt Reynolds because we were staying out in Los Angeles, and Buddy and I talked for a good hour and a half the night before the Super Bowl. And even though it's a, it's a late game. And, you know, the game was like at, at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, which is a late game because of it's 6 o'clock Eastern. Um, I remember getting up early and just you know running out onto the field and making sure that I didn't trip them during introductions and, heck, hardly remembering the early part of the game. And different things that happened during that game were, were really special and magical. Um, but watching John break that run and uh, just watching him get in that end zone, I mean, was just – Unbelievable. And then we got the late touchdown to seal it. And then it's over. You know, I'm in the huddle. We're kneeling down. Um, the words to my teammates are winning Super Bowl formation on two. I took the snap and I'll never forget. And I don't know if I covered this with you before, but I'll never forget. I had this vision of Joe Namath running off the field, waving the, you know, his, his index finger, number one. And then I had another picture of my mind of Terry Bradshaw walking off of the field, holding the ball up. So when I left the football field, you know, basically the image of Joe and Terry was in my head. You know, on my left hand, I had the ball up in the air. My right hand, I was waving my finger, number one. But uh, I guess in, in my mind's eye, I had seen those things before. And now it was the moment when I had a chance to do them. That would be cool. Super Bowl formation and just knowing it's over because yeah. of the, because of the clock. Nobody's going to hit a homer. <laughs> Nothing can happen right, right now. Well, it's it isn't a two-out rally. You know, it isn't a two-out rally. Right. You know, there's no walk-off. Right. Uh, we are walking off. We're walking off as world champions. I now remember there was a, a great sportscaster by the name of George Michael. He used to have George Michael's uh, machine. I remember, I remember it well. He pushed George, that button and... Yep. George used to do the show and I'll never forget. I'm sitting out in, in Pasadena, California, sitting in the Rose Bowl. George and I under the lights, everybody's gone. The place is empty except for George and I. And I looked up behind George and there was the scoreboard. Washington 27, Miami 17. And I, I looked at that and I went, dang. It's real. It's just I, I, that was the moment that it became real for me. Um, you know, the, the euphoria that goes with the championships and everything is just incredible. And then all of a sudden, you know, it, it's like a, it's like one of those snow globes where you shake it. And when the, everything's going on, the snow is falling and all of a sudden it's on the ground and the clarity is there. And that moment is there. And it's something special. It really is. 83 or pro bowler again, MVP of the league. You throw for 3,700 yards 
and uh, you go back to the Super Bowl. Any different this time? I, you, you talk about that confidence in, in that particular time in Washington Redskins history. You guys knew you were good. You knew it was a matter of time. You knew we're not if we're going to win, but by how many points? Was it surreal when you lost that Super Bowl or – did you go into it thinking we're going to win this thing? Well, I, I want to take you back before before the '83 season because uh, I go to the Pro Bowl after the '82 season. We beat the Dolphins, and Bob Baumauer was a defensive tackle for them. So Thursday afternoon, Bob and I are sitting on the beach, sipping away at a, on a pina colada, and I, I I was very reluctant to ask Bob this question, but I had to know. So I asked him a question. I said, "Bob, what's it like to lose the Super Bowl?" And he said, "Joe." You wish to heaven you never got there. It's so devastating. And I said, man, I hope I never experienced that. Wouldn't you know, the next year we go back and play the Raiders and I wind up having that feeling and I know what he felt like. But I that whole week I felt uncomfortable. My shoes didn't fit right. We were dealing with the wind. It was, a you know, just everything was just screwed up, I guess you could say. And 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 I tell people this. I went into that Super Bowl thinking I'd already done it. I was a world champion. I didn't prepare as well as I should have. I didn't practice as well as I should have. I didn't study as much as I should have, as I look back now in hindsight, because I thought I was already there. I'd done it. You know, I'm a world champion. Hey, I got a ring to prove it. Now we're back. It's it, it, now I'm going to go enjoy the Super Bowl experience. I'm going to go out to dinner. I'm going to have a good time. I'm going to do radio shows, TV shows. And and I just did not prepare myself to play in Super Bowl 18 like I should have. I thought I was preparing. But in hindsight, as I look back, I wasn't. I tried to live on yesterday's performance. And this is the thing that I try and stress to so many people. You know, I do so many speeches and and, and I talk to different groups and I say, look, and I, and I tell the people that, you know, salesperson of the year, manager of the year, you know, division of the year, whatever it might be. Enjoy the experience. Enjoy the win. But don't make it the thing that you think that you can't get better or that you don't have to work harder the next time. Because now you have set the barometer of excellence for yourself. And me, I... I look back now and I think, you know, I just I just took it for granted. I took for granted the fact that we were going to be we were there again. We'd beaten the Raiders earlier in the year. Of course, I didn't factor in that Howie Long didn't play. I don't think Marcus Allen played. They acquired um, uh, Mike Haynes. Uh, You know, Lester Hayes played the other corner and um, it was, you know, and then we had things happen. We had a punt blocked. Uh, I throw the interception at the end of the half. But I, I've got to tell you, I, I'll, I'll fast forward now after Super Bowl 18. So halftime, I walk to the sidelines. It's we're down. Um, we're down by, I think, 14, three down by 11. So I go to the sidelines and Coach Gibbs, we, there's like 13 seconds to go. We're on the 14 yard line and. Coach says, I want to run rocket screen. I said, Joe, I don't feel good about putting the ball in the air. I mean, it's, there's, not, there's not a lot of time. I don't know what we're going to accomplish. He says, it worked against them last time. And I'm thinking, you don't know that? Do you think they know that? So now I, 
I start walking away. I get about five yards away from him. I turn around and he points at me. He goes, run it. I said, okay. Hey, we're here. You got us to the Super Bowl again. I take the snap from center. I call the play, take the snap from center. It looks like they're in a zone. They took Matt Millen out of the game. They put Jack Squirek in the game to specifically cover Joe Washington, who I was going to throw the screen to. I throw the ball. Just as it releases from my hand, Jack breaks for it, intercepts it. It's touchdown. Now it's 21-3. It's halftime. So I fall on the sword. I'm the good soldier. Bad decision. Should have never thrown it. But then about four years after that, Coach Gibbs has a, uh, a youth for uh, tomorrow home for boys. And I think young men and young women. That's a charity. And so we're doing a dinner for it. And I walked up and says, Coach, I, 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 this has been bothering me. He says, what's that? I said, you know that rocket screen you called in Super Bowl 18? He says, yeah. I said, that was probably one of the worst calls I've ever heard had you in call. <laughs> You know what he says to me? He says, you know, Joe, you're probably right, but I got to tell you something. That pass was no peach either. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, we uh, – it was uh, – but, uh, again, I, I've tried to take from every experience in my life, life whether, it's, whether it's good or whether it's not good, I just believe it's a, a, an opportunity to learn something. And, and what I learned from the successes are they're fleeting. And you have to work for them and you can't take them for granted. And when I look, what I take from the, the things that are not as successful is why. What happened? What did I do? What could have I done better uh, to be able to change the outcome? Was it me or was it the circumstances that I, I was involved in? You know, what those are, you know, that's the way I sort of look at life. I, I think I've said this before. I'm a windshield guy. I'm not a rearview mirror guy. Can't change yesterday but I can sure affect what happens tomorrow. Yeah. These, these experiences in our lives and our career, they shape us to, to make us the people that we are. And, and as high as you were in 82 running off that field, it probably felt well in hindsight, looking back on it, it's like pretty cool. Get to go to the Super Bowl back to back years, but that's probably not how you were feeling when that clock ran out in 83. But, but this game, and it's, you know, this game, it doesn't matter what game it is. The game at the highest level, any sport, uh, I found it, it'll humble you faster than you know what hit you. You know, just when you think you're the, you're the crap, you're the, you're the big dog. It, this thing will, this game will find a way to knock you down. And, and it makes us what we are. It makes, it makes us appreciate the great times, the good times, because you know how hard they are. Uh, and how hard you've got to work to accomplish those great years, those great seasons. Those Man, for, you are so right. For you, you those so Super Bowl right. champions. Um, you know, and sometimes that comes with, with failing quite a bit. It comes with maturity. It comes with age, obviously. Uh, you know, been there, done that, going through the grind year after year. But, uh, it, man, it makes those high times so much more appreciative because you know how hard they are and they're fleeting. Yeah. Hey, Brett, you know what's interesting? Um, I was doing an autograph session with Mike Tyson, um, you know, about, I don't know, five, six years ago. And we were talking and Mike said something to me that I think is so prophetic and so apropos, with, which is exactly what you're talking about. He said, if you don't find humility, life will find it for you. And I, I think that's one of the greatest quotes I've ever heard from someone, uh, no matter what walk of life you're in. If you don't find humility, life will find it for you. It's 
So true. So true. Uh, 84. Another great year for you personally. Throw for 3,300 yards. And we get to the 85 season. And the question you probably haven't been asked ever. <laughs> ever. I was almost going to skip it, but I can't. I can't. When you get the, when you get Sizemore on, you got to ask him. To this day, do you watch it? Does your family watch it? Did your kids watch it? No. Uh, well, I've I've seen it once. Uh, it I don't 30, like. Believe me, it's thirty six. thirty six years ago. Over thirty six years, I saw it on the twentieth anniversary of my break. A guy by the name of David Haberstein, I believe, wrote for the New York Times. He came down to Washington. He said, I want to watch this game. I want to watch the broken leg with you. I want to experience what you're experiencing at that moment. And uh, I didn't quite understand that he actually wanted me to watch it. I thought we were going to talk about it. He was going to watch it. So finally he comes down. He says, we're ready to watch. I said, what do you mean? He said, yeah, we're, you and I are going to watch this, this game together. And I went, well, shoot, I didn't realize that. And I said, okay, fine. So we, we sat. And as it gets closer to the time when I know what's coming, I get this queasiness in my stomach. And and then I see it. And, and that's the end of it. That's that's it. It's I'm, I've seen it. I will never look at it again. Um, there are times when I've had experiences where it's happened. And, you know, I can take you. I can take you through that whole night, um, the night when it was it was broken. I mean, we were four and five. I wasn't playing well. I'll never forget getting up from my – I'm in the locker room. Uh, this is going to be my night. It's Monday night football. This is going to be the night that I'm going to show the world that, that, that Joe Theismann kid, that football player, he's coming back. He's making a statement again. So I get up from my locker. I start out of the locker room. We used to have that Redskin logo right above the exit sign. And I, I'm a superstitious by nature. So I, I hit that logo. And uh, I, for 12 years, I never said a word. But this night, I said these words. I said, tonight your life's going to change, Joe. And I went out on that field, and I didn't realize I was into prophecy, man. It was, <laughs> it, it was like unbelievable. And so you know, my leg gets broken. Um, I wasn't playing well. The game, the, everything was just so phonetic, I, frantic. I mean, it was things were moving faster than they'd ever moved before for me, but I don't, I, I just couldn't put a finger on it. And then all of a sudden, uh, Lawrence grabs my left shoulder. He comes left shoulder. He swings around and catches my right leg. And you can hear the, you can hear the sound on the TV, the pow, pow. I heard it obviously sound like two muzzle gunshots. And I lay there on the field and coach Gibbs comes running out. He kneels down next to me. He says, Joe, he kneels down next to me. He says, Joe, this, you've been so much to this football team. Joe, you've meant so much to all of us. Joe, this is a heck of a mess you've left me in. And we both smiled. And then they, then I, you know, and I pop me on the stretcher and they start to wheel me out of the stadium. And, and I stopped the gurney and I looked at Harry Carson. I said, Harry, I understand you're thinking about retiring. He said, I am, Joe. I said, don't you go retiring because I'm coming back. He said, that may be the case, pal, but it ain't going to be tonight. Um. And so they wheeled me out. And as they started to load me into the ambulance, uh, Jay Schrader hit Art Monk down the sidelines with a bomb. And then, you know, I got I got to the hospital and they moved me into a, the prep room and I had them bring in a TV so I could watch the rest of the game. They stuck a coat hanger in it. It was a black and white TV. Watch the game, put me back together. And then, you know, I, then I was done. I didn't think I was done. 
I'd broken, I, you know, to me, I'd broken my leg before I could come back from it. But, you know, back in, back in 1985, if you were 35 years old, heck, if you were 33 or 34, you were old. They yeah. didn't, they didn't want you around. You know, you were, you know, the economics weren't that great. I was, you know, I was making a, a million dollars. I was fourth highest paid player in the league. Can you believe that? Fourth it's, highest it's amazing, player. isn't it? It's I, just, amazing. I, I shake my head. I, you know, and I don't begrudge these guys a penny. I am so happy for every athlete that can get whatever they can get. I mean, I'm, I'm thrilled for them. It's just the, the window is so small. Get everything you can get. But. Again, I, I think back, you know, the fourth highest paid player in the league. And I think if you included bonuses, I, I think they said I was the highest in 84. And, and, and now, I, you know, you think of Josh Allen, 250 million, 150 guaranteed. Patrick Mahomes, you know, owns part of the Kansas City Royals. I mean, uh, I, la I, I laugh uh, at the economics. I asked a coach one day, I asked an owner at the Super Bowl in uh, Houston. I was with the owners and I asked one of the owners, I said, do you believe there'll be a $50 million quarterback? And he said, yeah. I said, man, I just can't even fathom that. $50 million quarterback. And if there is going to be one, it should be Aaron Rodgers. It should be Aaron Rodgers. Um, Kirk Cousins up in Minnesota is guaranteed $35 million this year. And next year, I believe his cap number is $45 million. So if Kirk is worth $45, Aaron's worth $50. And I think we, we might see it. We might just well see it coming up, which it, it first of all, it speaks to the amount of money that that's out there paying for it. Um, and, you're, you know, you're talking about a huge part of your salary cap. Yeah, it's the, the money is is you talk about that million dollars. And, and that was big time back then. You said you were for you were for look at look at Bryce Harper. Look at the guys in baseball. Oh, it's ridiculous. Trout signed for 400 million. He's the best. He's the best player in the game. OK, you know, something was really funny. I, I thought of this when Harper signs for his money. I'm thinking Mike Trout's agent is sitting there going, you know what? He's got a dartboard, okay? And he's got a dart. And he's got these numbers up there. He's got 350. He's got 375. He's got 400. He's, I'm just going to close my eyes and throw the dart. And it hits the 400 million mark. And it's like, okay, let's ask for it. Yeah. Well, you know, obviously the Angels have deep pockets. And, and, but, I, you know, I, I guess I try in my mind to – Picture a pay scale that makes sense. Is an outfielder going to determine whether or not you win a championship? Uh, I, I, I can't get my I can't get my mind around it. You're well, going to about one of nine times. You're going to get up maybe three, four, four, maybe five times a game. Um, and you know, as a quarterback, you handle the ball all the time. Sure. You're either handed off or you're thrown or something else. But in baseball, I see the numbers that certain people get. And I'm thinking, first of all, congratulations. Secondly, I don't know how I don't know how you as an organization justify paying somebody that you know you're going to pay them $150 million when they're out of the game anyway. It's going to be I mean, they're not at what at 35? How are they how much are they going to contribute right. as an outfielder? So it's a little crazy. And, and, and the money, 
Yeah, the money in baseball today, it's different because everybody, oh, well, he's he's not living up to his contract. I said, here's the deal. When you when you get to an elite position where you're one of the best in the world, when you're a superstar and you're a free agent, uh, they're not paying you. If they're giving you $300 million, they're not paying you for those last three years. Hey, the reason they have to pay you those last three years is to get the rights to negotiate with you because everybody else is in the five or five or six year range. The ones that are willing to go to 10 are the ones that get them. But they also know those last three years, we're just going to consider those a wash. We just have to do that to get this deal done. Uh, the economics of, of, of sports in general is amazing to me. But I think you you made a good point earlier. Uh, if they're paying them that much, these owners aren't stupid people. <laughs> so the bottom line is that money going out, there's a ton of revenue coming in. You see, and, in baseball, baseball is a little different, too. In football, we don't have quarterbacks. You don't have 32 guys that you could pay X amount of dollars to. You've got a, you've got a lot of you probably got eight to 10, maybe 12, which would be a third of the league at the quarterback position that give you a chance to win a championship. Right. Or a chance to get in the playoffs. But other than that, good luck. But now but you have to pay that 12 to 22 group. Because you don't have any options. You got a bunch of older guys or a bunch of guys that haven't proven they can play. Yeah, it's interesting. Very interesting. Uh, well, I'm not going to let you get out of that either. Give me, a, give me a little Burt Reynolds. I never met Burt Reynolds. I loved him as a kid watching all oh, his yeah. movies. I loved him most well, at the end, though. I love when he did the Dirk Diggler and when he did. Uh, he had a couple roles in his, in his uh, later years. Deliverance was one of his greatest, yeah. one of his best acting performances. Yeah. And it's one of the movies he didn't direct. You know, we, we did, I did, Terry, Terry Branchow did Cannonball 1. I did Cannonball 2. You did too, yeah. I did too. Uh, my first movie was with uh, George Raft. People will have to Google it after they listen to this podcast. Uh, but George Raft was one of the all-time great gangsters in television. Bert was, Bert was a fun-loving guy. I mean, he, he lived life to the fullest um, loved football. You know, was a halfback at Florida State. Uh, we we took. Uh, I went and saw him down at the ranch in Florida one one weekend, and we were. He said, "Come on, let's go over and see Bobby." I said, "What do you mean?" So we're 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 in we're up in like in Fort Lauderdale, and of course Tallahassee is not a short trip away. So he says, "Let's go see Bobby." I think it was a Friday afternoon. I said, oh, "Okay, fine." So he, he says, "Let's go. We'll take the helicopter." So we hop in a helicopter. We fly over. I visit with Coach Bowden for a while. We fly back and and uh, we talked about football. We talked about movies. Um, we talked about horses. Um, I went to see him out in Los Angeles uh, when he he had uh, I think it's TMJ had, had a problem with his jaw. And everybody thought he was had AIDS and he was sick. And you know it, it, it was just it was a shame to to see him go through all this. And then he came back. And like I said, the Super Bowl, we, we talked about the game. We talked about the season. We talked about just a lot of different things. He, he was really a, he was a fun friend and a very, very, you know, very generous, wonderful person. And just had the best laugh. He had a chuckle. I wouldn't even call it a laugh. He just had a chuckle that when you were around him, it just it made you smile. Yeah. I loved I loved Barry. I love back in the day. I love Hooper. Hooper is one of my favorite. Right. He's one of my favorite of all time. I think uh, 
I think uh, Bradshaw was in Hooper, wasn't he? I think so. Yeah, too. yeah, yeah. They were at the fight. He was in all those little. It seems like Bradshaw was always popping up in those days. He did. He did. Absolutely. Yeah. It was. Yeah. I mean, it, it was. It's really funny. Actors want to be athletes. Athletes want to be actors. Musicians. You know, it, it, whether we're. You know, you look at the world of entertainment in in its total nature. Certain aspects of entertainment want to be something else in entertainment. You know, it, it's really funny. Like we've got, you know, we have a lot of guys in, in guys in, in the game that, you know, they want to be musicians. Um, well, it's cool to trade stories too. For me, it's great to my favorite musician. All right. Tell me about this. And, this, and they want to talk about uh, facing Randy Johnson. What's that right. like? You know, so it's, it's cool. It's a back and forth, but you're right. But the musicians, I think, I think rock stars just want to stay rock stars. They don't want to be athletes or, or, or actors. Yeah. They just, they, they like their gig. They like having 60,000 people in the palm of their hand when they come on the stage. You know something, there's nothing like it. I, um, having had the opportunity for 40 plus years to be able to do speeches and still doing them. I did a, I did a speech in um, uh, Indianapolis at the old Hoosier dome for Amway. There were 30,000 people, 30,000 packed into the place. And these don't start till late at night. And I'll never forget walking out on that stage and the rush that you get. And I, I, I finally could understand how bands and musicians can walk out in front of an audience and you basically live off the energy that's coming out of that audience. Now, when I walked out on that stage and, and started to talk and, and, you know, you'd say something and people would respond to it. It's like, wow, it's, it's an unbelievable, it's an unreal experience, almost an out of body experience. Um, when you do that and, it's a, I guess it's, it's a little bit like, you know, when we played, you know, what was the biggest crowd you played in front of Brett? In, in oh, it's probably 60. Yeah. See, we had 101 in Pasadena, I believe uh, out there for the Super Bowl, And you play in front of that many people and, and you look at like schools like Michigan and, and some of these Ohio state where they have a hundred thousand seats, uh, Texas A&M. Um, it, it's, it's deafening, but really when you get into the game and I don't know if you experience this, when you get into the game and you get into that moment, you don't hear anything. It's just, there's a silence. You, you know, you, it's almost like, it's it's almost like you're looking at people and their mouths are open and they're got all these gestures, but you don't hear a thing. It's just it, it, it's really a, a, an unbelievable experience to go through. Yeah. And that's why I can't. It, it bothers me. This this golf when they have the quiet police sign and everybody's. <laughs> I said, listen, they're not talking about your mother. That's all they do when I'm in the in the batter's box. No, you're right, though. I mean, we're kind of just we're, we're wired that way is once that game starts and you're between those lines. That's it. If you can hear everybody, you're going to have a rough time. But I do right. remember that. thing. The eerie part was where I, you know, I'd go to. Florida to play the Marlins and old Joe Robbie and there'd be, you know, 8,000 people in that stadium. And, you know, that's a monstrous stadium. That's when you could hear people. That's when the difference was when there were 60,000 and everybody's screaming at me and uh, negative, man, that, that if, 
it felt good when you did something well because then you'd you'd open yours and go, all right, now I want to hear it. Yeah, now you hear it. Right. But you have, yeah, we have that innate ability to tune it in and tune it out, and you better be able to if you want to be successful uh, at the highest. I, but I remember you, you talk about those big crowds, and you know, I I didn't get that many of them but once in a great while you get that standing ovation where they ask you to take a curtain call and come out of the dugout and wave your cap i had a few of them and they are so cool and and we used to have in seattle uh eddie vetter would come down and and take bp with us and he was a big baseball fan and i'd get a curtain call and it's like oh when you get the curtain i said you get a curtain call every night you don't even have to sing good I said, you get a shitty set and, and you're getting curtain calls. I got to hit a three run homer and a three, two count to win it. Yeah. But you yep. can just, you know, you can just mail it in and you're going to get that. Set. That's, that's why rockstar different level. <laughs> Very yeah. cool though. Very cool. Uh, Post career now, you go to ESPN eighty eight to two thousand seven, and I'm interested in how did Joe? How did you call a game? Did you call it from the from the quarterback's perspective? Yeah, you know, actually, even before I went to ESPN, I worked at CBS for two years, and uh, with you know, with the passing of John Madden, who was you know iconic, uh, is the only way you could describe John bigger than life. <clears throat> when I went to CBS, John and Pat were the the team. They were the standard by which everybody was measured. And um, I actually left CBS because of John Madden. I, I, you know, in anything, anytime you're involved in competition, which broadcasting is, you know, you want to have the number one chair. And there was no way that I would ever, ever be in the number one chair because that was John's. And uh, I remember studying him. I remember working with him. I remember being around him. Um, He meant he means so much to football and, and all of the things that are taking place with respect to his career and who he was are so deserved because he was such a phenomenal individual. Um, but I, then I wound up, you know, it was between OJ Simpson and me going to ESPN um, and they made the decision to go with me and I work with Mike Patrick and, and for a while. And then Paul McGuire joined us. We had a three person booth and it was, it was fun, man. We had a ball. Uh, saw some of the most incredible things in football. Chris Carter's 1,000th 1000th, 1000th catch. Um, watched Lawrence Taylor against the against the Saints one day with a bad shoulder, have two sacks and a forced fumble with one arm. Um, Flipper Anderson catching, you know, 200 plus yards of, of receptions. So many different experiences that we had a chance to to do and cover and, and broadcast. And at ESPN, when we started, we only had eight games. I was eight weeks in the studio and eight weeks on the road. And then we finally got 16 games and managed to get out on the road and, you know, work with some great people. John Wildhack was my first. John's now the athletic director at Syracuse. Freddie Gadelli, who just went in the broadcasting hall of fame is the director of, of um, Thursday night, Sunday night football, done a fantastic job. Jay Rothman did a tremendous job at ESPN for a number of years. And, you know, it's, it's, it was, it's great to learn from the guys. It's great to experience things. And Susie Colbert still is one of the great professionals. Uh, Michelle Tafoya, someone else who I had an opportunity to work with, just wonderful, you know, women in, in the profession. Um, what they bring to it is so valuable and, and so wonderful. And uh, so, I mean, 
all those years at ESPN were absolutely great. And then we went on, you know, then I went to the NFL Network after that. Uh, and then we did a show called um, uh, Playbook, work with Brian Baldinger and, and Sterling Sharp and uh, just talked about the games. And it was, again, a, a fun experience. Just I've always been around the game. That's why I guess I love it so much. I mean, you know, you, you start when you're a little kid at 12 years old and uh, at, at 40, 45, 50, I was still broadcasting football. I was still doing that little kid thing, just talking about the game. And uh, not too many people get the opportunity to do that. And so I'm very thankful. Lawrence Taylor, how's your relationship with him? I, I would think, <laughs> I, I would assume it's, let me guess, I'm going to assume it's really good, but it's it's got to be kind of surreal. Like that was the that was your last play. It was yeah. because of him. He yeah. knows it. You know it. How is that relationship? You know, it's it's fine. I, I see LT um, at, at different events. We do autograph sessions, and he'll be there. And um, I just you know, we've actually played golf together. But I won't let him stand on my left where I can't see him. <laughs> he has to be visual to me all the time. Uh, I, I'm not sure if I told you this, but about four or five years after. I guess four or five years after the injury, uh, Lawrence had a bar up in Jersey and they have these you know, Monday night shows where the players there and the people come in the restaurant and they ask them questions and they talk about the game and yada, yada, yada. So he invites me up. So it's off of route three up in Jersey. And so we're doing the show and they play the broken leg behind us. Neither one of us look at it. And I turned to Lawrence and I said, um, I said, you and I are forever going to be connected through this injury. We know how it affected my life. How did it affect yours? And again, something very prophetic I've learned from someone. He said, Joe, I learned a great lesson that night. No matter how great you are, what you do, it can be over in an instant. And that's why every day you have to get the most out of the day. You have to practice the hardest. You have to work the hardest. You have to do the best you possibly can because there's no guarantee that tomorrow is going to be here. And, and I, you know, I saw, I've always remembered that. Always remembered it. Um, and, uh, you know, so to me, you know, we, we see each other. I laugh. We laugh. He hugs me. I still, he still, at least he doesn't hug me and put me on the ground like he used to. Yeah. He just hugs me. <laughs> no, and I think you're right. I mean, we, it's, that was probably a very, very humbling moment for him. And, and the words he's, he spoke to you, oh, you know, mean, the, speaks you volumes. At, yeah. You look at the film and, you know, he's waving to the sidelines. He saw it, you know, we heard it and he saw it and it was uh, the pain was, I get people come up and say, did it hurt? I said, well, let me do this. Let me go get my car. Hang your foot over a curb. Yeah. I'll be right back. <laughs> yeah. you know, if you want to experience it, I can accommodate you. But And then all of a sudden, from the knee down, my leg was completely numb. As a matter of fact, when they were transporting me from the stadium to the hospital, when we got there, they were moving me off the hospital gurney onto a, excuse me, off the ambulance gurney to a hospital gurney. And they forgot to pick up the lower right part of my leg. And I looked at it and I looked at my leg sort of, hanging down and I turned to one of the attendants and I said, excuse me, somebody pick up the rest of me and put it on here, please. Didn't feel a thing. Didn't feel a thing. But um, that's, that's the amazing nature of the body. 
Yeah. I, by the way, I, I love watching some gory stuff. I like, you know, I love, I love fights. I love MMA fights. I can't watch your, you said you've seen it once. I've maybe seen it a half time. Oh. I don't like seeing stuff like that. I knew how bad it was. And I remember, and, and I, if it, you pulled it up right now, I wouldn't watch it. Yeah. Oh, I, I can't, I, I don't like it. All I right. It. I know what happened. Cannonball run two. We mentioned you were in that. And I'm really, I'm kind of starting to date myself too. I remember BJ and the bear. I know you're in there, <laughs> but I want to hear about hosting American gladiators. Yeah, we um, actually, Mike Adamley and I did that. It was, it was, it's really, um, you see the show American Ninja Warrior now. That was the American gladiators. I guess you could call it now, maybe the grandfather of, of those types of shows. Um, it, it, there was obstacle courses. There were beams um, that you had to walk over. There was jousting. Um, they had, you know, these guns that fired tennis balls, all kinds of different things. And, and Mike and I had a chance to host. I did it first two, for the first two years. I mean, our beams were basically, it was really weird. When we built the set or when they built the set, um, there were like screws sticking up out of the ground. Well, you know, people would be jousting and, and you know, they, they were just screws sticking up how they bolted the the platform that they worked on uh, under the ground. And you had uh, you had things where you'd you'd run and throw balls into buckets. And I mean, all kinds of wonderful stuff. It was it was really it was neat to do stuff like that. I've been very blessed to be able to do so many different things in the world of entertainment uh, in general. Um, I've never sang and have no intention of ever singing because I can't. Um, my mom used to make me sit in the front pew because my voice was so bad. She said, the preacher has to be here. Everybody else has come to listen, not to you, but to him. So I used to sit in the front pew and sing hymns there. Uh, but it was it was being in, you know, I've, I've always enjoyed movies. You know, Cannonball was one. BJ was another one. Uh, I've done Brooklyn Nine-Nine. I did. I've done recently a couple of Hallmark movies, Love on the Sidelines and Snow Coming. I've been a couple of the movies I've had a chance to do. And yeah, I, I like to I like to extend myself. Uh, you know, you, you get nervous doing it. It's it's challenging and it gives you a different perspective and a different respect for other people with with a job like that. Actors, you know, actors and actresses, man, they work hard. It's a long day. It's hard. There's a lot to it. Um, and the director makes it either either easier or tough on you, depending upon how demanding they want to be. And I've been blessed to work with uh, with some really great ones. And I enjoy the experience. You know, football was my life. And now there's a life after it. And I, I really enjoy the motivational speaking. And, you know, I wrote a book called How to Be a Champion Every Day. And uh, – the essence of the book are the things that I talk about. I talk about opportunities and goals and attitude, and customer service and teamwork and motivation and, and those things that I think are, apply in the world of sports, the world of business and our own lives. All right. We're getting to your mask. You knew it was coming. We got the one bar mask for Joe Theismann. I, I've had time to think about it. We got Bob Boone. We got Joe Theismann. Both got really good hair. Yep. And both wear the most, well, I like them. 
but the most ridiculous mask that you could pick. You got the punter's mask, one prong. Bob Boone's got the 19... 1950 style umpire mask yet he's yet he's playing yeah yet he's playing the 80s and the 90s but i'm his son so i think that's just dad's mask doesn't everybody wear that mask (laughs) but now i've got you to go okay what 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 brought that on the one the one bar and uh, i just want to i want to hear all about the mask it's it's taken on a life of its own i wore this i wore the single bar in canada I first start. I wore. I had two bars at the University of Notre Dame on my helmet, um, face mask. That's way too many bars, Joe. Oh God, yeah. So I went to Canada, and you know, you know, it's it's funny. You get these things in your head. It's like um, I took I took the pads off my thigh pads and just wore shells, um, and and just wore knee pads and shells because I thought it would make me faster. Uh, my shoulder pads were really small. I didn't wear I didn't wear a hip pad girdle. I, I just taped some knee pads around my hips just to protect them all to make me. So I did all these goofy little things. So when I went to Canada, um, Greg Barton, who was the other quarterback up there, Greg had a single bar. And so I said, Hey, you know, you know, I'm going to, so I put a single bar on up there and it allowed me to be able, as I handed off, I was very finicky. I never wore anything on my right wrist or right elbow and, and my my hands were very sensitive to the to whether the ball was wet or whether it had stickum on it or whether it was dry, whether it was wet, moist, whatever it might be. And so uh, I just it, it bothered me handing off. I, I created this scenario in my own mind that it bothered me. And then when I came to the Washington Redskins, Billy Kilmer and Sonny Jurgensen both wore single bars. And I thought, what would I look like if I wore a double bar? So I, I wore the single bar there a little bit because of peer pressure. And again, because it it helped me hand off. But I was the last non-kicker to be grandfathered in to be able to wear a uh, single bar in 85. And uh, that was my that was my signature. It was everybody has a signature. You, you know, you had your mask. I had mine. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me something about good in sports right now. Oh, I, I think I think sports today gives people an escape from the craziness that we're seeing in society today. Um, so many, so many tensions in society, so many different elements of society that have been become so divisive that in sports you see people from all walks of life, race, creeds, um, religious backgrounds, all pointing towards one goal, one chance to be able to to hoist the trophy or one moment to be able to, um, you know, vent your frustrations. I think it gives a place for fans to go to to scream and yell and and get behind somebody and, and you know, look at a quote unquote hero. You know, people have come up to me and said, you know, Joe, you're my hero, but and I appreciate that, but you know, to me, the heroes are the men and women that put on a uniform, the firemen, the policemen, the, our soldiers, our men and women that that go out and defend our freedoms. They're they're the heroes in our lives. You know, we in the world of athletics, we go play a game that we played when we were little kids, and now people pay us absorbent amounts of money to go do it, and and you still love it. There's still got to be that child inside of you, or else you just don't play it well, and and then we're gonna go home. People that put on a uniform that protect us, they don't know whether they're coming home. 
You know, if you go into a fire or you go out on patrol or, you know, you're you're stationed somewhere in the world or even in this country, there's no guarantee that you're coming home. And so I have so much respect and admiration for those heroes to me that I really think sports is is that that's why it was so important to get people back in the stands, Brett. I mean, so important to have people cheering again, to be able to, if for nothing else, vent their frustrations, because we certainly have a lot of them. Um, you know, uh, it's just we need it. We need we need sports right now worse than we ever have, I think, in the world. Just like during the war, you you had to have sports to give some p- people some place to go, uh, some some alternative to the realities that we're living and dealing with. Joe Theismann, thanks for coming on the program. It's been it's been a pleasure. Uh, and what we do each and every Boone podcast at the end is we kick it to Dan Levy for a question from the fans. Dan. Gentlemen, how are you? Hi, Dan. All right, Joe. This one comes from Marty in Baltimore, and he wants to know this. Joe, what was it like playing in D.C. at the height of the Redskins' success? And who was the biggest person you met or signed an autograph for? Um, Wow. First of all, it was unbelievable. I mean, uh, the success that we had during that period of time under Coach Gibbs. And, not, you know, I mean, I got there in 74, 79. We, we, you know, had a chance to do something special. 81, Coach Gibbs takes over. 82, we go to the Super Bowl. 83, we're back to the Super Bowl. Um, I mean, you didn't, you didn't have to buy dinner anywhere. Everybody bought it for you. Uh, it gave me the privilege to meet uh, a number of presidents. Uh, President Reagan was one of the people I really appreciated being around. Uh, President Clinton was another one that I had a chance to meet. But uh, And during that time, though, uh, I was given the opportunity to uh, get to know Burt Reynolds. As a matter of fact, in 1982, the night before the Super Bowl, I spent an hour and a half on the phone with, with uh, Burt just talking football because, you know, he was a, an unbelievable halfback down at Florida State, huge football fan. Um, and, you know, he was he, he put me in Cannonball Run 2 after that. But during that time in Washington, everybody would focus on what the Washington quote-unquote Redskins were doing more than anything that was happening in politics. And that was sort of neat uh, to be the talk of the town in a, in a, a town where – you know, it's really the most powerful one in the world. And all of a sudden you're a part of, uh, of something that everybody's talking about. I mean, it was, man, you wanted to be out on the streets. You wanted to walk around and you wanted to say hello to people. And uh, it was exciting and fun. Joe Theismann, thank you so much for coming on the Boone Podcast. We appreciate it, sir. Thank you for having me. Mailbag. All right, Booner, you know what time it is, don't you? Uh, mailbag time, Dan. Mailbag time, Booner. All right. Close your eyes, Booner. This one comes from Jeff in Cincinnati. He wants to know, Booner, put yourself back in your playing days. January 1st, off season. What are you concentrating on? What are you doing to, during this part of the off season? Uh, back to my playing now. Early in my playing days, minor leagues, my first couple of years in the big leagues, man, I've already been hitting for a month and a half. Uh, as I got a little elderly and I got some uh, some time under my belt, this is the time I'd start doing the baseball activities. So the throwing, the sprints, uh, hitting in the cage. I wouldn't touch a bat. Uh, 
you know, for the second half of my career, I wouldn't touch a bat until January came unless I needed to make a swing change from the previous season, which actually a couple times in my career, I've made swing changes. And then that's a whole different off season. But the normal off season, January one was that time where, where I pick up the bat and ball for the first time. Uh, just when the season ended the previous year, it was just weight room, weight room as much as I could up until January 1st. When January 1st started, then I started doing the baseball activities. All right. Well, that is going to do it for this year, Brett Boone Podcast. My name is Dan Levy. I'm the technical director, producer, and the voice of the Boone Podcast. EB executive producer, Rich Herrera. Digital stuff that gets handled by Liz Landry. Thanks, Liz. Please share the Boom Podcast with neighbors and friends. Make sure you subscribe to the Boom Podcast so you never miss an episode of the show. And while you're at it, give it a five. A fi- and while you're at it, give it a five star rating and share your feelings about the Boom Podcast by leaving a review on whatever platform you listen to the show. If you want to ask the Booner a question, do so at the Moon Twenty Nine on on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. He can be found in all those places. You can also find me on all those social media areas at Bates on Air. B A S S on Air. And for all of us here on the Boom Podcast, I am Dan Levy. Thanks for listening. Booner, flip the bat, turn the lights off. Let's roll.